0: Hello, my name is Sarah and I am your Chakra Coach. On this podcast, we'll be exploring how the chakra system can help guide you to grow your emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual wellness, leading you closer to your highest self. Hi, everyone, and Happy New Year. How are you? I'm not going to lie my new year has been off to a pretty rough start. I had some things happen in my personal life that were unexpected and really not at all how I thought my life would go. Uh, I don't want to get into too much detail because this show isn't about me. It's about you. But I know that lots of you have gone through things that have changed you in a lot of ways. And I want you to know that Even though it can feel lonely at times, we're truly a world full of people who are changing every day for better or for worse. People say, and I say, I'll never be the same. And there are events that make that true on a macro level, a broad level, whether that's a trauma or a joy. But it's also true on a small day-to-day level. We're changing. Our lives are changing. What we try to do here, what I I try to do here, is recognize that at our core, our energetic center, we are constant. We are always the unshakable soul that is part of the broad universe, and all the things that happen around us change our outsides. And of course, they change our thoughts and our feelings and the process of our lives, But your authentic self, your true self, remains. It cannot be broken or damaged or separated from the love that is the universe. So, however your year ended, good, bad, the same as always, hold strong to the core of you, your values, and the goodness that is in you. Nothing can change that. I thought for the podcast, I would start the year off a little differently than I'm going to, but based on my own experiences of the past week or so, I wanted to bring you this interview I did with Nicole about her near-death experience. I mean, talk about something that changes you, right? We talk about it being transformative, but we also talk about how she eventually had a new understanding and appreciation for exactly who she is, who we all are. This conversation is intense. She gives a description of the injuries she sustained when she died. We talk about spiritual abuse and trauma, PTSD, depression, anxiety. Nothing is is overly graphic, but I do want you to know that we talk about these things because you, you have to take care of yourself. So if you are afraid that might trigger you or not feel good, Just listen to another episode. Personally, I found talking to her to be really uplifting, but also parts of it were unsettling and hit really close to home. I loved every minute of the conversation, even when I was uncomfortable. So I'm bringing it to you without any real editing. And stay tuned after the interview when I'll be back to wrap it up and share a story about what happened to me just days after Nicole and I had this conversation. Right now, though, let me introduce you to Nicole. Award-winning health expert Nicole Kerr is the co-author of Eating the Rainbow, Lifelong Nutritional Wellness Without Lies, Hype, or Calculus. She has appeared on CNN, PBS, CBS, ABC, The Food Channel, and a host of other TV and radio shows to share her unique perspective on wellness, lifestyle, and nutrition. For the past 30 years, Nicole has worked in all sectors of society, including the government, nonprofit, the military, academia, healthcare institutions and hospitals, corporate settings, and private consultation. Her warm, engaging presentations have earned her a place in front of international audiences, ranging from corporate food producers to health and medical associations. Throughout her career, she has focused on supporting people from every walk of life to make realistic, meaningful, happy choices for lifelong health and well-being. But the thing I want to share with you most of all today is that when she was a 19-year-old cadet at the United States Air Force Academy, Nicole was forced to learn how to live and love completely completely differently following a terrifying and transformative near-death experience. Her memory of the crash came back 20 years later, and it has taken Nicole almost another two decades to align her soul, spirit, mind, and body, proving that healing is certainly a non-linear process. A disabled veteran, Nicole now spends her time promoting her new best-selling book, you are deathless. An NDE taught me to fully live and not fear death. She speaks about it and she is an eternality advocate. Everyone, welcome Nicole. I am so happy to have you here today. How are you?
1: Oh, I'm doing well over here in North Carolina, Sarah, and I'm (laughs) delighted to be on your show. I really am. You're just such a wonderful influence, and I love what you have to say, and I'm glad that I can have this conversation with you. Well, thank you. Um, That's very kind of you. I appreciate that. Um, I think I, like
0: so many people in the world, I'm completely fascinated by near-death experiences, And I was sort of reflecting on that, like, why, why would I be so interested in that? Like I watch all the TV shows and the movies and it's so interesting and read the books. Right. And I thought, well, we all die. We all leave these bodies. It is something that is guaranteed, but it's something that we generally know nothing about. Almost nobody can come back and tell us about what it's like. We have to experience it. But nobody tells us what it is and what it's like. Um, and so I think we're all just really fascinated by it because it's something that you're going to have to do and you have <laughs> no information about it. Um, and that's, you know, it, that's very nerve wracking. But also I think just from the the other near-death experience people that I've heard from, it's it's very life transforming, right? People rank mm-hmm. it as like the... Number one most transformative experiences of their life, and I think that a lot of us who are seeking things are looking for a transformative experience. That might be a little much. Yes. Um, <laughs> like, that's I why like I feel I wrote the
1: book. I don't want you to have to go through that.
0: <laughs> no, thank you. That feels <laughs> awfully intense, right? Like, and I understand that people don't choose that, right? It is something yes. that yeah that happens, but uh, so I think I'm not the I'm not alone in no being no fascinated no by, any by means. these. And so I'm just so thrilled to be able to get to speak to you. And I loved the message of your book. Just the title, I think, says it: you are deathless, which is something that a lot of us sort of believe in our in our heads. It's really difficult to translate that to our hearts. And one thing I think your book really attempts to do is give us sort of that pathway to go from intellectualizing. Oh, yes, the soul lives on. Uh, I understand that academically to understanding that in sort of our our bodies, and our spirits. So after that very long speech that I just gave, (laughs) um, will you tell us your story? Tell us about your near-death experience.
1: Absolutely. I would be delighted to do it. Um, You know, first of all, I, I will tell you a little bit about who has I, I how I grew up I grew up with a father who was military okay he went to the Air Force Academy wanted one of his kids there are four of us to follow in his footsteps um, I grew up in the south in Mississippi the Bible Belt very very religious so my father was Southern Baptist my mother was Lutheran so um, the hardest part about church for me is there was so much of it we spent <laughs> almost all day Sunday at church, Wednesdays at church, then the revival season came, you know, we had to pack a pew, all that kind of stuff. And what I always remembered was the concept of God. And I talk about this because it relates to death, because your concept of God is going to affect the way you feel about death. And uh, in those religions, God is duality. God is loving, God is uh, protecting and and peaceful and protecting. And on the other hand, there's rules to follow. And if you don't follow the rules, if you're a sinner, if you're bad, then you're going to get punished. There's judgment. And in the Baptist church, um, fire and brimstone in a place called hell, you know, so know it well. Yes. So I think a lot of a lot of people grew up, you know, with that type of concept of God. And so when I had my near death experience at 19, that was my belief system. And I didn't know anything different until after I crossed over and remembered it, which was another almost 20 years later. Okay, so I went to the Air Force Academy, um, not knowing really anything about the military not really caring it was just to please my father i was a super duper people pleaser and i'm in recovery from people pleasing and i ask if that's an identity that you over identify with please start working on getting rid of that because at the end of the day you're just going to feel like a roach that got stomped on okay there's really nothing in it for you when you just try to please and please and please you never form your own opinions you never figure out who you are. It's always what they want. So um, I think that's a a value that we used to think was good in the South. Um, Also, you're not taught to express your emotions, you know, especially anger. And I think that's another um, part of where we as a society need some help is how to learn to um, not just intellectualize the emotions, but to embody the emotions. So I was very much taught, you know, I think Americans in general are taught for emotions, bad, sad, mad, and glad. We don't have that extended buffet. And that can really uh, traumatize us later in life when we're not able to, um, when we hit stressors or hit traumas, be able to process it when it happens, because it stays in our body. But moving on at 19, I made it through the first year at the Air Force Academy. I knew three weeks into basic training, I did not want to be there or need to be there. And my soul certainly didn't want to be there. I appreciate the military that it's here to protect and defend. I understand all of that. But at the at the end of the day, in the military, you're trained to kill, kill the enemy, okay? my soul is not a killer. Okay. It's just, it isn't. I modeled, I did all these things And you just, you wouldn't look at me and think, you know, uh, M16 or any of that kind of stuff. I was a lot like private Benjamin, but just I side
0: note, I'm not sure anybody's soul is truly a killer. I think yeah. that's something that we have to be trained and desensitized trained in, yes. to. Um, so yeah, I feel, yeah. Right. Like going into the military for anyone is hard. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I think, you know, video games that have a lot of um, killing in them, also, it desensitizes you to it. And you think that, oh, that person you just killed is going to get up again. And that's not true, you know? So I think there's a lot of misconceptions that can happen when you just immerse yourselves in these kind of games as well. Um, so and anyway, movies I was and in- all those kinds of things. Yeah, they, yeah.
0: They, we we live in a, in a violent culture that sort of gives us a numbness to
1: violence that we might not, well, that we're certainly not born with. Okay, I'm sorry, please continue. No, no, so these tangents can go off in a million directions. So at 19, uh, I finished my first year, which was, uh, I don't know, by the grace of God, I finished it. Uh, I was getting disillusioned with the God that I was brought up with because I was praying and I was asking for help. And I mean, I was just like, you know, I thought I would, I would die literally just on the obstacle course. I thought, okay, they made me run it twice. And I just thought I just, I'm just gonna die. And the next time I have to go over the the puddle with the the rope, you know, or whatever. It just, you know, maybe on my 50th push up, I'm just gonna splat, you know, it just, it was just you have to go to the extreme. And that's what they're teaching you to. But I was just like all the time in fear. So my amygdala was in that fight, flight or freeze and it stayed that way the entire year, okay? It never got to calm down and relax. Um, And then the second year I knew the stakes were higher academically, leadership wise. And I just was like, I don't know how to get out of here. I could not quit the humiliation and the sense of failure because it took so much to get in there. You have to have a congressional nomination. It's a difficult process. And mili- women were just admitted in 76. Uh, so the first class graduated 80, mine's 86. So I was one of the first women you know, to go through it and it was abusive, okay? I'm just gonna tell you it's abusive mentally, physically and when women got in there, it was sexually as well and i can't believe that i was putting myself through this willingly and so my soul had gotten to the point i think where it was just like i don't know i don't know how i'm going to survive without failing and getting kicked out so at the beginning of the sophomore year basically what happened was there was a big squadron function And we all went to kick off the the school year. And there was um, beer provided by the Air Force and people playing softball. I got there late. I asked a guy for a ride back. He was we were the last to leave. He was a senior. He had a Corvette convertible. And I was like, Oh, this is going to be cool instead of having to go back on the bus. And, um, and we never made it back. He wanted to stop at a bar and have a couple more beers. And I was like, Okay, I didn't know this guy very well. Uh, And then he wanted to go stop and watch the sunset at the beautiful Rocky Mountains. So he had a whole agenda of a sexual nature that I was clueless about because I never went on a date in high school, you know? And my dad's rules were no dating, uh, no dating in the upper class, no smoking, and no drinking. And I was just like, I'm going to school with 4,000 guys, and now I'm finally able to date them and you're telling me not to still date them. But anyway, um, what happened was I kept going, we have to get back It's at, by 735 because that was our curfew. And I was really worried about that. I didn't want to get in trouble. And um, the last thing I remember was him pulling on the road. And I just said, we got to get back you know, I don't want to get in trouble. And he had tried to make a sexual pass at me. And I said, no. So that is, I woke up in the ICU at Penrose Hospital. And I was like, oh my God, where am I? And uh, the air officer commander of our squadron and the squadron commander were there. And they basically told me, you know, I was in a, in a wreck, um, never made it back. And they had called my parents and I just thought, Oh my God, my dad's going to, I thought, Oh, my dad, my dad's going to kill me. You know, here I am. Oh, your dad's a little late. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I didn't know what happened. The only thing I remember were bright white lights. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if that was the hospital operating room lights, but my surgeon was like, no, Nicole, you were unconscious. So I later found out through the paramedic that found that, 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 actually, um, came to my hospital room that was responsible. I call him one of my angels that saved me. Um, he told me what happened and what happened was that the car, uh, the guy was speeding and he made a pass at me and I said, no, and he jerked the wheel and this is what happened. That was a 65 Corvette convertible
0: listeners you can okay. see this photo but it's barely recognizable as a car
1: yes exactly and then you know i always wanted to make the first, the front page of the paper but not this way and i don't know if you can see that but that was yeah the front page i'll we'll have so- to get some of
0: these photos and put them on instagram or something so that people can see it really is I mean, uh, what, it, yeah. what, did, so what did he hit? Was did prena- he run off the road?
1: Did he, he... hit? He, yeah, he was going uh, a left curve in the back of the the, mm. um, the car. Uh, what is it called? Just uh,
0: skid it out. Just circle. Yeah,
1: and hit a huge boulder. This is oh. in Colorado. Uh-huh, My uh-huh. side of the car did flip the car, moved the boulder, and I was pronounced dead at, at the scene. So in essence, he killed me in, in that in that sense. And so what... I remembered um, 19 years later, 20 years later, was coming out of Starbucks. I was working at the CDC. I All of a sudden, I got in my car, and I remembered exactly how I was sitting in the Corvette. Exactly. Because I could never figure out. I had uh, amputated my left foot. It was hanging on by that much skin. I had- Just like a
0: quarter uh, inch?
1: Ooh. Yeah. I was- um, i cut up all the insides of my thigh i had a fourth degree laceration which is the the worst you can have between my anal and sphincter uh cut up the whole vagina area i'm just going to be graphic cut a huge hole out of the the inside of my right thigh broke my pelvis in two uh severed my right wrist my um face skidded on the pavement and uh, got road burn. So it took off several layers there. Uh, so I didn't have, I did have a head injury, but not like traumatic brain injury or something like that. Um, and then my spine was intact and I could never figure out how that happened. And then I realized I was sitting with one foot up on the dashboard and the other leg crossed over. Mm-hmm. And I went butt up through the windshield that cut up all that inside. Okay. Um, but it saved my head and my spine. Now I found out from a nurse uh, that's the worst position in a car is for you to put your feet on your dashboard. I was just thinking that I was like, <laughs> I've
0: always been told putting the feet on the dashboard is the most dangerous way to sit. But in this is. one weird case,
1: yeah. it saved you. Oh, that's and I didn't have a seatbelt and that saved us because we were thrown out. It was a convertible and it wound up landing on its top. So um, there were some some people at a house, they heard it, they came out, couldn't get any kind of pulse on me. So they got a blanket and covered me up. And then when the volunteer fire department got there and then the the other Tri Lakes County and other uh, rescue units got there, This one particular EMT uh, said, nobody calls uh, a death, I have to do it. So he took the blanket off of me and he started working me and did something called a sternal knuckle press and my right pupil flickered, my eyelid flickered and dilated. That was the only sign of life he could get into me. And at that moment, Sarah, my soul came back in through my eyes and we always say you you hear this saying the eyes are the window to the soul and in that case that's how my soul came back in and all of a sudden they got a really weak vital 60 over zero okay that's still oh, almost dead but easy. it's it's um it's uh, it's alive so they got me to the nearest hospital which was a community hospital not a trauma level hospital and the uh, surgeon that was on call that night is another one of my angels, uh, Dr. Stewart. She's 84 now and she's retired, but she was the first woman surgeon in Colorado Springs. She was the first woman medical school at Jefferson College in Philadelphia. I mean, she was a barrier breaker in the day. And, um, and then my, the head nurse, Sandy was amazing. She stayed with me the entire four months. She's OCD. Okay. Mm. And I needed that type of person. You know, it's like when they bring you your tray and they have the milk, she opens the milk carton, she puts the straw in, she puts it up to your face. You know, it's not just here's the food, you know, she was that detail oriented. Um, I was like this for four months. I had six
0: I mean, when Uh, you say that, you mean like you would do better and then you would get worse and you would get better.
1: Yeah. And so I had to have a colostomy um, people that's rerouting your bowels. Um, mm-hmm. and I woke up with that. And the first thing I thought was, oh my God, nobody's going to want to ever have sex with me. I mean, because <laughs> of the being a woman great. <laughs> yeah. I was These just like, the we think about. how do you, how do you explain this to a guy? I'm only 19, you know? Wow. So, um, and then I had an emergency operation where mm-hmm. it actually wound up being a code blue. They lost me. They went and told my parents, uh, to get, funeral preparations, they had called the time on me and were cleaning up. And then all of a sudden my heart started again. So, um, you know, I had three near death experiences, basically two in the hospital and then the one at the scene. And I, I now have an angel that I know is James and he protects me in terms of he fought so hard for me to stay alive because he knew what my mission was going to be. Mm-hmm. And so he he di- he did. I didn't want to to come back. And I know this now from the memory that came back.
0: I was just going to ask you that and I have another question. When you say James, when you say James is an angel, you mean an actual metaphysical being angel yes. and they you, then you also have these angels on earth that you refer to. You're the yes. nurse and the surgeon and the paramedic. Okay. Yes. I just want to be clear, um, everyone, when we, when, when Nicole talks about angels, she's encompassing a broad variety of people, but also literal.
1: Yes. Angel. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I believe in angels and I believe they come in many forms. hmm hmm Okay. Yeah, I, so. I see why you would believe that having had actual
0: <laughs> personal experience with all forms of, of angels. when you, you say you, you didn't want to come back and you remember that now, when you had that memory, how did that, how did it feel to realize that you had been in a place from which you did not want to come back?
1: Um, I knew, okay, so that let me just backtrack and say, when I remembered, I was on my way to work and I just stopped the car and I went to my chiropractor who also did body work. And I sat there until he had an opening. And what he told me is that these were um, repressed memories. Okay. And they were now coming up almost two decades later, because my body felt safe enough Mm -hmm. for them. And I had support around me at that point to deal with it. And so he helped me get to a certain place in the memory. And that was the, uh, the accident, the crash. And then this angel who I now know is my grandfather, uh, my dad's side. He's the one that came down in an angel form and picked me up and took me up to another level. And uh, all I can say, I knew for for years it was, it was a male and I could describe, but I never connected it with my grandfather until this past August. My grandfather died at 58 years old. I am 58 years old. He died in August and Mm -hmm. I got the memory back right around his death. And it's like, he waited all this time to tell me he was the one, you know, and I'm like, now I could have put that in the book. Now i have to <laughs> tell people the follow-up that it's Casper the ghost is really my grandfather, you know, but, um, but it was him. And that's why I, I was felt safe enough to go up. And it was like these white, this white light that people talk about, it is a clear light. So it's not blinding. You, you know how sometimes you get in front of a car, the deer light, you can't see. It's not like that at all. You can see. And there were so many colors up there um, that that you couldn't feel. I mean, Crayola only has a fraction of the colors in their Crayola box. Um, The colors are just brilliant and we can't even imagine what other colors exist. But what we do know about white is the color white absorbs all other colors, right? So when you're in this white light, you're really in almost like a kaleidoscope. And it is so soothing and so brilliant and so uh, loving and so beautiful. And it's like you're in this chrysalis and cocooned and safe and nothing matters. You know, nobody wants, you know, it's hard to want to go back when you look down and you see your body. And I did. I saw my body in the ditch. I saw the clothes I had on, my teal-colored eyes and my khaki shorts. And I was just motionless. And I thought, oh my God, if I go back down there, I'm going to just be filled with pain and suffering because I'm going to have all these injuries physically. But then I also have to go back and live with my mother and father who are religious And they're never going to understand what I'm experiencing Mm -hmm. over here. That's not going to fly at all. And, um, and so it was just a really like, oh, I don't want to do this. And they said, this is going to be your mission. And, um, and I'm like, okay. And then while I was up there, you have to understand, I don't have a body. Okay. And so it's, it's, it's hard to imagine yourself just this vapor spirit kind of being and um you could i could understand conversations going on now i it's not the english language i don't know how i understood it but i did and these two beings were discussing how that we here on earth need to ask them for help and i was like hmm. and they're like yes we're not going to intervene because of free will God has given us free will to choose. But if there's an emergency like my situation, yes, they will come down and they will intervene. However, otherwise, you have to ask for help. So this is a reminder to people to ask your angels for help. Every single one of us has at least one guardian angel. Okay. And they're here to help us. They want to help us, but you have to ask. And you may laugh at people that ask for a parking space, you know, they're angels for a parking space, but I'm telling you, it shows up, you know, it can be something as tiny as a parking space, or it can be, you know, something really big, but it's about having that relationship with the spiritual realm. And so, so many of us don't know how to do that. So we start by asking for help. And then I was like, okay, that makes sense to me. And then, boom um i wake up and i'm in icu and i was like oh my gosh you know i i couldn't see a mirror to see what i looked like but i can tell you when my mother got there two days later she later wrote in the book that she couldn't she couldn't she didn't want to break down and cry in front of me But she said, I didn't recognize you at all as my daughter. You were so swollen. You were gray colored. You were just, you know, um, you still had all the the grit and dirt in your hair. And it was uh, very, very painful, she said, to just sit there and and realize I could do nothing for you. Um, And I didn't know how close you were to death every single day. Every day I came into the hospital, I never knew if they were going to tell me if you were alive or dead and that's the way it was for seven weeks in intensive care and even after intensive care when they put me in the pediatric unit i still was up and down with different Mm -hmm. things happening so um and i think the hardest part was thinking and knowing that my parents blamed me for the wreck um they my dad said that i broke his rules and that that's what happens when you break rules is you suffer consequences and so um That's what happens with God as well. So I disappointed God. I disappointed my father. And so I lived with that shame and blame, uh, even though I wasn't driving. uh, And my dad has never said he's sorry. And then when you read in the epilogue of the book, it's going to shock you because my roommate who quit the academy loved it, but quit that December I had not talked to her in 38 years. We did a Zoom call with the other two uh, roommates. And she said, Nicole, I'm so sorry, I caused the crash. And I said, what, Margaret? And she's like, yeah. She said, you had asked me for a ride back. And I told you, yes, we were gonna ride back together. Don't worry about that. And then when you did ask me, I told you no, because I wanted to go back with another cadet who was drunk and drive his car for him but I also liked him and wanted to be alone with him. So I told you to go over there. There was one car left and you told me that guy's been drinking and you didn't really want to go with him. And I told you, Oh, they've all been drinking. You'll be safe. I'll see you back at the Academy. And she didn't know we were going to stop and have more beer. Cause he turned out to be alcoholic. And, um, and it was just, she couldn't live with the guilt it has haunted her for 38 years. So that's another part I want your audience to understand about communication and what you think someone knows or doesn't know. I had no memory of that conversation and she thought I knew about it and just never said anything and was angry at her. So she never reached out to me after, Mm -hmm. after that. And she, you know, totally went in a different direction in her life. And she just said, our lives would have drastically changed if I would have just said, get in the car Nicole, like I had told you. So I told my dad that, you know, story um, and he told me, and I knew he would say this. He said, you still made a bad decision, Nicole. You should have walked home. I said, the Air Force Academy was 25 miles away. But that's the Marine, Mm -hmm. no, I shouldn't, I shouldn't just put it on Marines. That's that black and white thinking of right and wrong. And you disobeyed me. And he told my other siblings, this is what happens when you disobey me. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. So I suppressed all of that, Mm -hmm. you know, because the God that I experienced on the other side was Nothing like his God, which is the literal translation out of the Bible of that God, you know.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and we don't talk anymore. And no. I just,
0: I am terribly, terribly sorry because that's extremely difficult. But I was, yeah, I was going to ask you if you thought the um, lack of emotional expression or and emotional suppression delayed your healing or delayed your ability yes. to recover the memories. And I think that's that story really just sums it up absolutely yes. when we re- when we don't acknowledge our emotions when we don't acknowledge that part of ourselves and you and I've talked about this before like yeah. it delays your it delays your healing but it doesn't just delay your emotional healing it delayed your your mental the actual healing of your brain, the healing of your body to find that moment of safety whereas if perhaps your parents had been able to embrace you just as you were, Yes. You know, as the, the person that you were who needed love and care and unconditional acceptance in that moment, it might have been a shorter road, not a, maybe an easier one, but a shorter one. So, um, and, yeah, and the other really part, sorry.
1: That, yeah, the other part that was really hard for me is the doctor, when we were discharged, told my mother, Nicole's going to need mental health. She's been through a huge trauma. And her life has completely changed. She was pronounced dead. So there is going to be a lot of, uh, she's going to need a psychologist, psychiatrist, uh, probably PTSD, a lot of stuff. And my mother looked at him and I remember her saying, we don't need a psychologist or That's psychiatrist, right. Jesus and God That's right. are ours." Yes. And that she was wrong. I needed mental health. I needed, I didn't get diagnosed with PTSD till two years ago. they Can had I get ment- the
0: timeline on this? This, this accident happened in 1983, 1980- 83, 83. 83. Yes. So the conversation around mental health was certainly not what it is now, but your doctor knew. I mean, we, we understood, we understood mental health and trauma from soldiers and such, you know, that's been. Yes that yes. that that's that's historical we've known that from every war um, you know so much of what we know about ptsd comes from work with the military so those doctors knew yes. from their work and your attachment to the military that you would need the help but i think there's a lot of like religious dogma tied up in Yes. Not getting psychological or psychiatric help. And I think that actually persists to this day. I'm not sure that aspect of it is better, but I do think that there's a lot more openness to it. So you were diagnosed with PTSD two years ago, which is kind of one of those weird, like funny things. Cause like, I feel like you could have, could have been diagnosed with that 20 years ago. Right. I feel like every, like it would have been pretty,
1: well, they went, they went through a they skirted around it. Oh, you're dealing with depression, Nicole. Oh, you're dealing with anxiety. You know uh, here's a anxiety drug. Here's a depression drug. Um, I went through, and all of those things are I think useful. It's 41 right. different medications wow. in 40 years and none of them worked, you know, and I just recently two years ago got that diagnosis and they told me the reason those meds didn't work is because they weren't treating PTSD has a different dosing and a different, um, uh, Medication—you can use these medications, but you weren't at the right dose, so no wonder it didn't help you at yeah, all.
0: and just a different approach, right? If we're yeah. treating a chemical imbalance, or if we're tra- treating a trauma, right? Yes. I think—not that I'm an expert, which I'm certainly not—but yeah, like it's just a different approach to to treatment. Hmm.
1: And getting the correct diagnosis, you know, and yes. I think that is a huge. Uh, problem in the not only the military but in general, so many people get misdiagnosed or undiagnosed um, with really um, the, the true uh, root issue, you know. Um, and then there's also something called spiritual abuse, and I didn't know about that until till recently. And I thought, wow, what is that? And that is where you are taught. This concept that God is external and that you're a bad person, that you're uh, all this stuff that relates to believing that your version concept of God is judgmental, punitive, um, uh, the wrath of God, all of that, Mm. that that is abusive to teach people that and keep them in fear, because that's what it does. And nowhere does God ever say, I want you to be in fear okay god is love and that is one of the common lessons from near death experience is is love is all that matters and it's the source of all that exists so if it's the source then that means it's god right god is love god is not up there waiting with a tablet Going, you did this in 1983, Nicole. You were a sinner. So um, you didn't, you know, seek forgiveness or whatever. That that's all man-made stuff to keep people in fear and controllable because God is within. You, every single one of us, are an eternal spark of God. And we forget that. We get spiritual amnesia when we come in and start getting these filters put on by going to different religions or listening to different authoritarian figures. And this time and space that we're in right now, um, we are at an awakening. Things have got to change on this planet with people because everything and everyone is connected. Let me say that again, because that's another one of the lessons that we bring back is we're all connected well if we're all connected what does that mean we're energy mm-hmm. right and what leaves us when we pass on the breath right you don't breathe your body just is going to decay so that vapor that breath that escapes okay that is energy we are energy so it is we're all connected And we need to understand that the way we're treating each other with disrespect or judgment or um, killing, these mass killings or whatever, you know, that that has got to stop. And we need to respect all uh, humans, uh, sentient beings, uh, any type of animal. You know, COVID was an excellent example of respecting animals that we didn't listen to because the first group that got sick with that were the factory workers at the pig, uh, I think it was poultry industry, the pig industry. Well, that would be the pork industry, not the pigs, but the pork industry and the beef, right? They got yeah. really sick because SARS is an animal to human transmission.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And did we do anything about the way we process animals in response to that? No. No, no, but that was a red light to go off to say these vi- the, these viruses that are coming out are hu- are animal to to human, and we've gone through the swine flu, we've gone through you know several versions of this, and we're not treating the animals any better, and our so, environment,
0: right? As, as yes. part of nature, and the more yes. we destroy and mother, nature, and Mother
1: Earth, yeah. right. the and, more we destroy and,
0: nature, the more we are destroying ourselves, ourselves. And, yeah. I think and, that you make. The, the, the point, the fact that we're all connected via energy, that we're literally just all made of the same stuff yes. is incredibly uh, important. At this point in the interview, I had to call it. My emotions were high and I had to take a break. I don't know how you felt listening, but I was exhausted experiencing it. I do want to tell you a funny, or at least I thought it was funny, story about what happened to me about a week after Nicole and I talked. It was Christmas Eve day, and I was going to the airport to catch a flight to see family for the holidays. My daughter was with me, and we got to the parking lot, which was absolutely jam-packed, as you can imagine. You know how people park in like non-spaces because they get desperate, and and even the farthest reaches of the lot are just crammed with cars. Now, I turned down a lane of spots, and (laughs) I said to my daughter, I don't know why I think I'm special and will be able to find close parking. But I interviewed a woman last week who said we all have guardian angels who want to help us, even with something as small as a parking space. I believe her, so I'm asking, guardian angels, would you help us find a spot? Not 10 seconds after I asked the question, we saw an open spot on our right. We just looked at each other and... We had these huge, wide eyes, and and I can't remember which of us, but one of us said, is this really happening? And it it was. It was a parking spot right up front, incredibly convenient, and we were just floored. It could not have been more directly related to Nicole's lesson from her book, which is to ask for help. And next week, I've asked Nicole to come back and share more lessons from her book. And you better believe that I'll be paying attention and taking notes because the first lesson I learned was so incredibly spot on. Please remember to follow your Chakra Coach on social media, Instagram and Facebook primarily, because I'm going to be making some announcements about my new courses, including Chakra Balancing for Weight Loss, which I think we're all super excited about this year. It's not a diet or exercise program because that's not what the chakra system is about. Rather, it's a way of engaging in self-love, self-acceptance, and self-compassion. And self-exploration we will use the chakra system to better understand ourselves and why we make the choices we do and to better understand our place in this incredible universe. So be sure to follow me there to get the most up-to-date info on that. Links to everything, including Nicole and her book, are in the show notes. And please, please come back next week to hear all about the lessons from Nicole and her experience in the afterlife. Have an amazing day. And remember that lesson. We are all connected. Bye.